You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. You know, that's the first time I've seen that screen, and I'm wondering if I should take that personally. I mean, it's lacking a little hair. They got the top of the head right, but they're missing the, uh, the, the chin there. Just wondering. Well, today marks the halfway point in our 15-week series, the summer charting a course through the entire Bible. And the series that we're engaged in is called Inspired, How the Story of the Bible Shapes Our Lives. And we're asking some key questions, such as, what are the themes that we discover across the arc of Scripture? How do we encounter God and hear his message when we read and study the Bible? And finally, how does that encounter and how does that message shape our lives? And today, we find ourselves at a hinge point in history. We encounter a turning point in the community of God's people as they are called out of exile to return home to Jerusalem. We've heard that story already this morning. Now, you see, exile represented the most humiliating catastrophe of national life in the history of the Jewish people. The people of God were totally dominated, overpowered by the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem was completely destroyed, literally flattened. Not a single stone stood on another. And the most desirable citizens, the the political and and religious elite and those that had particular skills or abilities, these were taken into Babylonian captivity to serve as slaves of the empire. And the remainder of the people were left behind to live as an abandoned and vulnerable people. Jewish life had hit a new low. And worse still, the national psyche was absolutely shattered. Everything they believed about themselves came under question. What has become of the great promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What has become of this notion of being God's chosen people? What's the status of the covenant? Has God finally given up and set loose, cut loose his people from him forever? And just as hope was beginning to run out, just when the people began to think that their 70 years of slavery in exile was permanent, the tectonic plates of geopolitics shifted. The Persian king named Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, disrupted the captivity of God's people, and under the Cyrus proclamation provided the invitation and the opportunity for the Jewish community to leave exile, and return home. The hinge of history swung the door wide open for something new, and the people of God transitioned from doom to bloom. But the bloom wore off very quickly. The return wasn't easy. Life was extremely difficult. Starting over and rebuilding their lives in a a foreign environment among hostile neighbors was arduous, And progress was not swift. It took them literally decades to begin to reestablish their lives. It seemed as though they took two steps forward and three steps back. Obstacle after obstacle 
after obstacle. But in the midst of these enormous challenges, God raised up two extraordinary leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra was a priest and a scribe, a gifted religious scholar, thoroughly acquainted with the law of Moses and the ways of God's covenant. And Ezra, well, he was a skilled public administrator, a great public servant. And Ezra's job, he was called to reestablish the spiritual center of the community. And Nehemiah's job was to rebuild the broken places of the community. Well, over time, over a considerable amount of time, decades, eventually the temple was rebuilt and the spiritual rhythms of the community began to take root again. And Nehemiah led a massive public infrastructure project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, reestablishing a new sense of security for the people living among dangerous neighbors. And this is where we pick up the story today. Reestablishing the roots of their community. And turning to the book of Nehemiah, we pick up the story at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7, right at the very last verse. The wall is completed The people settle into their homes in the surrounding towns and villages. A new normal begins to take place, to take hold. There is perhaps for the first time a measured sense of security. They've they've arrived at the other side of tumultuous change and life-draining vulnerability. And it seems as though the community was waiting to exhale. And finally, there's an opportunity to experience a collective sigh of relief. We've made it. And between reading between the lines of this history, you can almost hear an audible, well, now what? What's next? What do we do now? And so we pick it up at the end of chapter 7, and I'm going to read the passage, right? Beginning at the end of chapter 7, verse 73. It's on page 379 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. I'm going to read the passage for us, and you'll understand why uh, as we get into this. But let's all stand, if you're able, and listen to the Word of God. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their town, all the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. And beside him stood Metathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on the right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Mushelam on his left hand. You see why I'm reading this uh, passage? <laughs> Can you imagine the verbal train wreck if we all tried to read this? 
it would have made the Tower of Babel sound articulate. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah. These were the Levites. These Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense of it so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You may be seated. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Father, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work these words into our lives and then lead them lead us forth out of this to work these words out through our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what we witness in this passage is a pivot point in the life of God's people. It's as if the leaders of this Holy Land returnee community hit a hidden reset button into Jewish life. There's something unique that's going on here. You see, the first day of the seventh month is the Jewish New Year. It's a national holiday. It's the Jewish's day of celebrating the civic life of the, of the Jewish community, but they never celebrated New Year's quite like this. The leaders have hijacked an otherwise civic celebration and brought together the widest possible community for a time of renewal and reorientation centered in the Word of God. This is a historic event, a pivot point in the life of that community, an event that leads them into a new future where the people of God regain their sense of identity and regain their sense of mission. You see, Ezra stands before the assembly beginning at daybreak, reads till noon from the Law of Moses, those first five books of Scripture that lays out in beautiful detail the extraordinary love story of God in covenantal relationship with his chosen People. And the people stand there in rapt attention for five to six hours, assisted by the instruction of the Levites. The Levites came alongside the reading and made sense of the Word of God. They, they made it clear, they gave meaning to the reading. 
And at the end of the reading, there is this interesting response, a sort of dissonance in the community. The people respond to the receiving of God's word with weeping and mourning. Their response is soul-wrenching grief. They've heard this beautiful love story, and in it they come face to face with their unfaithfulness and realize the pain of their brokenness and their sense of betrayal of the covenant with God. Deep and utter grief is the corporate response to realizing the enormity of their failure. So they must have been a little surprised, perhaps even scandalized when at the leaders, when the leaders call for a celebration. I mean, what's that about? How's, how is that even possible as a viable response to realizing the enormity of their unfaithfulness and betrayal? And yet, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites were inspired differently. They essentially suggest that perhaps the people have missed the point of the message. Certainly it's reasonable to respond in grief if you're only focused on the darkness and the shadow of your own personal failure. But the essential message of scripture that they're discovering here is pointing to the light of God's immeasurable, undeserving, unrelenting love. Or in the words of our storybook Bible that beautifully put it, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. You see, the essential and overwhelming truth of this scripture that they heard that day is the unimaginably good news that God has not abandoned them, has not given up on them in spite of themselves, that God has a purpose for their community that defines a mission in the world that will infuse their life with meaning. In other words, the covenant is still in play. That good news is worthy of a serious party. And that's how this text ends. In sheer joy and celebration. But clearly, that's not the end of the story. If we were to continue reading on the remainder of chapter 8, continuing through the end of chapter 10 here in Nehemiah, these passages describe a monumental reset in the life of this God-chosen, God-centered community. This gathering of the community continues into a week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles where the people of God give themselves to, immerse themselves, literally marinate in the reading and study of the Word of God. Seven days. In the course of this ongoing assembly, we witness the word of God being worked into the lives of God's people with tremendous transformational effect. The community is literally being reshaped. And the outcome is a fundamental reorientation, a reconsecration to relationship in covenant relationship with God, a reordering of community life, discovering new patterns of life together, of gathering together to give witness to God's work in the world. And finally, a recommitment to be people on mission with God for the good of the world. They are renewed once again to live as a viable, visible community inspired by God's word, centered in God's covenantal relationship, and recommissioned 
for participation in God's mission. That's what the covenant is about. Blessed to be a blessing, chosen as a people to participate with God in his healing work in the world. And as I reflect on this story, I wonder if perhaps we find ourselves in a similar place to these Holy Land returnees. I mean, after all, like them, we're broken people living in broken places. Like them, we've passed through some difficult transitions. We've been humbled and challenged by tumultuous change. And maybe just now, just now, we're coming into a place of settling in to a new normal. So that begs the question, what do we do now? I wonder if this isn't a hinge point, a pivot point in our congregational life. I just get the sense that we're ready to live into a new adventure together. Perhaps we're like the community that we've encountered in this text. We've arrived at a place where we can fully face forward and receive and celebrate God's covenantal love and we can reorient, reorder, reset our congregational life and live into this mission that's been so simply and beautifully articulated, share hope. Now indulge me for a few minutes. And let's just say I'm right about this. Let's say that we're poised to live into this mission in a renewed way. Share hope. What does that mean? What is involved? What does that look like? You know, our beloved pastor, senior pastor George Hinman, has brilliantly deconstructed this big idea, share hope, into three core experiences. In other words, these core experiences are the ways that we enact or embody or incarnate share hope. And these three core experiences are alive in Christ, alive together, and living for the world. Now, I'm not a very prescriptive person. I'm not the kind of guy to point the finger and say, you need to do it this way. Although if any of my staff are here, they may disagree with me on that, on that point. But if you'd allow me, if you just humor me for the next few minutes, I'd like to take a stab at interpreting the meaning of this congregational mission share hope. In other words, unpack tangibly, practically, what these three experiences might look like in our lives. First, alive in Christ. And I'm convinced that what Alive in Christ involves is committing to a persistent rhythm of connecting to the Spirit of God. It involves the regular exercise of spiritual disciplines. Did he say the D word? Disciplines. The spiritual disciplines, these baseline uh, avenues of encounter with God, focused, regular time, studying and meditating in scripture and then engaging in a prayerful response to what we discover there, seeking to understand God's initiative and direction and how we might participate in the Spirit's movement in our world. That's alive in Christ. And that's the baseline for sharing hope. 
Alive Together. Alive Together involves the commitment to invest in a pattern of Christ-centered community. And I've come to the conclusion that as a congregation, we need at least two types of community. And if you've been paying attention over the last couple of years, we've had a tremendous emphasis on small groups, a small group ministry. And we have become, we have become a, a congregation of small groups, not just merely a congregation with small groups, but a congregation of small groups. And you know what small groups involve. It's a regular commitment to meeting together in intimate communities of six to eight, more or less, where we grow together as Christ followers, small communities where we face into one another and we seek to be known and to seek to know one another. These are places of mutual encouragement and mutual support and challenge and hopefully accountability. But you know there's a second type of community that I think we're called to. And that's what's called incarnational community. An incarnational community is a rhythmic gathering together of Christ followers where we commit to face outward and that we engage in practices to, that, together that create invitation and welcome to the spiritually alien and the sojourner looking for a place of authenticity and hospitality. And the formation of this community involves developing practices and pursuing intentional activities that create a porous boundary around our community that allows people to participate in our life together. And these porous boundary communities could be things that we do anyway, like book clubs and dinner groups and pub nights and neighborhood barbecues or hiking, bicycling, golfing, skiing, gourmet cooking communities, shared activities where we create an intentional place of welcome and shared life that faces towards our neighbors, towards those networks of people that God gives us and invites them to, sh to uh, participate in the sheer goodness of Christ-centered life, creates enormous opportunity to share hope. Alive together. Living for the world. Now, living for the world is a huge area of experience that could engage numerous expressions of service and ministry, everything from crossing the blue water as a global missionary to coming alongside a refugee uh, in our community to serving as the PTA president of your local school, living for the world. But for the sake of this conversation, I'd like to focus it in the tangible practicalities of our daily lives. Framed in this way, living for the world involves paying attention, awakening to the Spirit's movement in the lives of those around us, and seeking ways to intentionally enter in to the rhythm of their lives, and then loving them in such an authentically powerful way that over time they become interested in the shaping presence of Jesus that they experience in our lives. Living for the world. You know, one of my heroes is Leslie Newbigin. He's deceased now. 
but he was a missionary statesman, an incredible contemporary theologian. And in his writings, he makes this really interesting observation about first century church evangelism. He says that all of the instances of evangelistic encounter recorded in the New Testament were essentially initiated by the non-believer. Not by the church, but initiated by the non-believer. And the resulting disciples' evangelism or the church's preaching that resulted were merely responses to questions that the pagan community was asking because they experienced something in the believing community that they were drawn to and wanted an explanation for. In other words, things were happening in and through the shared life of believers that elicited curiosity and required interpretation. And so here's the question. Might we too become a congregation of incarnational communities that live toward our neighbors in such a grace-filled way that compels them to ask, what the heck is going on? And our simple, hospitable response is, hey, come and see. We're trying to follow Jesus. Come on along. Now, I'm not unveiling anything new here. It's been happening here at UPC and, and has been for a long time. I mean, consider our university, our university student ministry. That student leadership group is an incarnational community that is living towards the neighbors that they're being called to. We heard it earlier this morning with Colin Jayoon, a growing community of residents here in the U District that are beginning to form an incarnational community to face into the lives of our international neighbors, our international students that are right here in our U District. Other incredible incarnational communities here in the U District that are facing into the lives of students, Vision 16 and, and, and others. And there are neighborhood groups that are beginning to form, that are emerging, that you'll hear more about over the next weeks and months that are ahead that represent UPC neighbors gathering together in ways that face hospitably toward their neighbors. I'll close with this quick story. Hugh Halter is a pastor in Denver who's developed the habit of hanging out in local coffee shops to do his work. Now he goes there, he goes there to do work, but he also understands that part of his work is practicing what he calls holy interruptibility. And so one day he's at the local Starbucks working on a book that he's editing and he takes a break and he starts a conversation with this guy named Don. And he learns in the course of this conversation that Don grew up as a non-practicing Catholic and is alienated by religion, having experienced it as a bunch of life-draining, joy-killing prohibitions and unreasonable rules. And he says that his wife hates the idea of God, but he confesses that he's cool with God, but not a big fan of religion. So Hugh lobs up this question. Hugh says to Don, now, Don... What if Christianity was only about finding a group of people to live with who shared openly their search for God and allowed anyone, regardless of behavior, to seek along with them and who collectively lived by faith to make the world a little more like heaven? 
Would you be interested? And Don replies, excuse the language, I'm just quoting here. He says, hell yes. And then he adds, are there churches like that? Are there churches like that? I would think a church with a mission share hope might resemble a hospitable, inviting, incarnational, incarnational come and see community like that. I think down deep that's who we are. And at the same time, it's who we aspire more to be. Well, you've heard enough of me. Got it under five, six hours. Didn't I did better than Ezra? Well, as you know, the custom at the end of the sermon is to close in prayer. But I'd like to do something a little bit different this morning. And that is to invite you into a brief time of reflection. Personal reflection, sitting right there where you are. And here are some of the reflection questions I'd like to engage you with. Did you hear something this morning from the Spirit that inspires you or nudges you to reorient, to reorder, to reset some aspect, aspect of your life with God? Do you need to reorder your priorities to develop a regular rhythm of connection with God? Is there a small group or an incarnational community that you would like to join or better yet, initiate? Are there some people or a person in your neighborhood, in your network of relationships that you're sensing God's initiative to enter in to deep, deeper relationship with? Let's just take a few minutes in silence and just reflect right there where you are. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.